this service is to introduce you to Jesus as a person. For you to know his personality. Like if you just ran into him, what kind of guy would he be? Because I think that that is what sets Christianity apart from other religions. That's what sets Christianity apart from religion. And at its core, by definition, Christianity is not a religion. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But um, we're talking about a person here. And I think it's really important that if you're going to take this faith seriously, uh, you need to know this person. So that's what we set out to do with this. Because at the story, we try to reach out and cater to people who have more questions than answers. People who are skeptics at heart, maybe even cynics, people who are uh, spiritual but not religious types of people or agnostic types of people. And so we want to answer everybody's questions about who Jesus really was. And I think the people I run with anyway, the people I talk to, I think one of the greatest obstacles to faith in Jesus is this idea that you can't be an intellectual and a Christian. <laughs> that you can't be smart and spiritual. You have to choose. Whether you're going to be an academic or whether you're going to be backward. And, um, you know, many of you cope with this by keeping Jesus in a box over here where you have your faith and you open this box on Sundays and you live this life. But then you go out into the world the other six days of the week and you live a whole different life. But you box Jesus up before you go out and live this life. And it's not that you live some kind of, a, you know, a party animal kind of life. You just don't bring Jesus with you. Because you're afraid that the minute you talk to your smart coworkers, or you work in a degree in a field where everybody has high levels of degrees and things, or maybe your family is really academic, and it's really hard for you to bring Jesus to your Thanksgiving dinner table, right? And so uh, you just kind of keep it packed away because you're worried about how they'll judge you if you say you're a Christian. Because in the academic scale, I think it just takes you down a few notches if you profess Jesus, you know, you, I mean, even if you, especially if you say, like, I'm a born-again believer, like, that just takes you down even more, like, you know, or if you say you're an evangelical, even more, you know, like, uh, they, they, they make assumptions about you if you uh, say that you're a Christian, if you own that publicly, and, and, and so I know that's a struggle for many of you, I know that because you've talked to me about it, and, and, uh, and I know uh, the challenges that you face, trying to reconcile your mind with your heart. Trying to reconcile your thoughts and your intellect with your beliefs in Jesus. I want to encourage you today to not draw a hard line between the two. Uh, now, <clears throat> I have shared before that uh, the moment I decided to leave Christianity in college was a moment that my favorite, most popular professor came to class. And he made fun of Christians by showing us this t-shirt. It had this popular meme on it. And it said, Christianity, the belief that a cosmic Jewish zombie was also his own father and can make you live forever in his cloud kingdom if you symbolically devour his flesh and telepathically accept him as your master so he can remove an evil force from your soul, which is there because a rib woman was convinced by a talking snake to eat from a magical tree. <sighs> Makes perfect sense, he said. And this popular, funny professor, uh, you know, had, had his way with Christians and the whole class laughed. And it was at that moment that I finally decided that I'd rather be like this awesome, popular, smart professor than believe in these fairy tales anymore. I believed that I had been lied to, that I had, you know, taken the bait and believed something that's just ridiculous to believe. Now, now that I know more... And now that I've done my own reading, my own searching, it's very easy, the easiest thing in the world to pick this statement apart. It's, I mean, it's piece by piece. I could just dismantle this so easily now. But when I was 19 and impressionable, I was susceptible to this. And uh, I decided that 
uh, this Christianity thing was not for me and I wanted to be like this awesome professor, of course. Little did I know then what a sad, lonely little man he was. Uh, he had a, a, you know, he seemed cool on campus, but uh, he had <laughs> some issues uh, under the surface. But I left the church because I wanted to be more like him. I didn't want to look stupid. And some of you may not have left Christianity, but you might have kept Jesus in that box because you don't want to look stupid. You want to be smart. You want to be academic. And I talk to people, especially young men, all the time, who struggle with this very issue. Because Christianity, to many of you, feels condescending at times. It feels a little childish. It feels a little sheltered to you at times. Christians sometimes seem like they're scared of science. Your Christian family might have told you when you went off to college, you know, don't let them change you. You know, that's what they told me when I went to seminary. My small town religious family said, don't let them change you. Don't open your mind too much. Your brains will fall out. You know, that kind of thing. That anti-intellectual kind of bent you find in churches sometimes. And many of you uh, heard that growing up or you perceived that in your churches and you went off to college and, and maybe you made the same turn that I did and you left maybe because you were so intellectually curious and you had so many questions that it seemed like the church just wasn't welcoming of your questions. It seems like the church too often is where questions, the best questions go to die. And in my experience, the people that leave the church don't leave because they're selfish or lazy or millennial or whatever the, the articles online say. It's because they are so curious and so questioning and so smart and intellectually engaged that they don't know how to bring that to Jesus. With this uh, series and especially this sermon, Today, I, I want to make that a little more uh, clear and approachable for you. Because for me, it wasn't the church that brought me back. It wasn't this book that brought me back. It wasn't any institution or building that brought me back. It was just the man, Jesus. And discovering who he really was in history, undeniably, who he was is what brought me back. There's this awesome uh, story from Luke chapter 2. It's in your study guides. It's going to be on the screens as well. And I just love this story so much. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But this is when Jesus was 12 years old. All right. So it says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, they were, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. That's one word for it. As his, <laughs> as his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, <laughs> your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. <laughs> she might have said that in a different tone of voice than I did. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in his heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and with man. There's three things that I love about this passage. I'll touch on them real quick. The first thing I love about this passage is that they lost Jesus. 
you know, it's one thing to lose Jesus when you're a freshman in college. You're like, I just lost Jesus, you know, like, but they actually lost him. They, I don't know, any of you who have been parents, you've lost a child for a minute. Like, I've lost my two kids uh, recently, actually, for like 30 seconds in Barnes of Noble. And I, I just went full Liam Neeson from Taken. Like, I just went, uh, like, where are they? You know, like pinning guys against a wall and just losing my, my mind. You know, and my kids aren't even that special. Like, they lost... They lost Jesus. Like, this was the son of God, right? And so they were responsible for the savior of the world, and they lost him, not for a few minutes, for three days. <laughs> for three days, they lost uh, Jesus. And, uh, and, you know, when they find him, Mary's like, behold, I doubt it, right? Like, that's a generous, <laughs> a generous interpretation of what I'm sure she must have said. The second thing I love about this passage is that Jesus was in the temple because the temple wasn't church. It wasn't like a, just a religious place. The temple was where the greatest minds came together. The temple was the academic center of Israel. It was where the smartest people taught. And so Jesus was there as a 12-year-old. Now, what this means is that Jesus was a nerd. And people say a lot of things about Jesus but nobody ever says what a nerd he was, what a student he was. Because how many of you being 12 years old and losing your parents for three days would go to school? I doubt it, right? We would do other things. But not Jesus. He goes to, 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 to learn, to ask questions. And Jesus asks questions in the temple. He was a good student. And it says here that he grew in wisdom because he asked questions. And I love this. This is the third thing that I love about this passage is that Jesus grew in wisdom. I love, love, love that idea because it confuses us, right? Because we're like, Jesus was the son of God, right? Jesus was God in the flesh. Isn't that what Christians believe? And so didn't he come pre-wired with all the necessary information? Like, didn't he already know it all? How did Jesus grow in wisdom? And, and sometimes we think about, you know, baby Jesus and kid Jesus just coming with all of this divine uh, wisdom already. And so this doesn't make sense to us. And we start to think like Christians thought in the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, Christians actually thought of Jesus as an old man because he came with all of this old man knowledge. And so you had creepy art from the Middle Ages where Jesus is this weird old man with with like a comb over problem, you know, at infancy, it's just this awful, you know, if anything, if anything gives you confidence in Christianity, it's that it somehow survived the Middle Ages. And, and it lasted. And, 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 you know, they had all these weird beliefs about Jesus because of how they understood him to be God in the flesh. But this is the way I look at it, and I'm not sure if this makes sense to everyone, but yes, we believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, but knowing all things as God in heaven is one thing, but learning and knowing things as a human being on earth, it had to be another. And so Jesus had to learn to filter knowledge and information through this finite brain he was given all of a sudden. He had to learn to filter it through his emotions and filter it through his hormones and filter it through his feelings and all the things that we have to deal with as well. And so he grew in wisdom as a child into adulthood um, because uh, he asked questions and sat and learned and grew. And I think it says something about Jesus' personality that he grew in wisdom, that he looked for knowledge. 
that he studied with the smartest people, that he was, in fact, a nerd, a student, a good student. Now, um, this is, in fact, the fact that Jesus was a bookworm is, in fact, what caught people off guard the most about Jesus. This is, I mean, his miracles were a big deal, and, and, you know, the stuff he said was a big deal. But the fact that he was a scholar is what really caught people off guard about him. Because if you were here last week in the morning, you remember that Jesus was a tecton, which is the word we've translated as carpenter. Carpenter is a romanticized kind of term for it. Tecton was, a tecton was a, a day laborer. A tecton was a guy that looked for work. A tecton is a guy that stands outside of Home Depot and, and waits for someone, hopes someone comes and picks him up for work that day so he can put food on his table. That's what Joseph and Jesus were. That's how they fed their family as construction workers. And, yeah, they worked with wood and things like that, but they weren't architectons. They weren't the, uh, the master uh, builders. They were day laborers. And so um, people who were tectons did not go to school. Tectons didn't get an education. You know, Nazareth wasn't known for its school district. You know, Nazareth wasn't West U. You know, Nazareth was Pasadena. All right. So <laughs> uh, Nazareth was more like, you know, like, for example, Nathaniel, the, the apostle, before he was an apostle, he was all cool about Jesus until he heard Jesus was from Nazareth. And then Nathaniel says, can anything good come from there? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Anybody from Pasadena? Has anyone ever said that to you? Sorry. All right. I love you. All right. So <laughs> that's, that's the impression Nazareth gave. It wasn't an academic center. And the fact that this tecton from Nazareth uh, was an intellectual shocked people. The fact that he spoke three languages, at least three languages, uh, Aramaic, Hebrew, and some Greek, um, maybe even Latin. That's unproven. But we know he spoke the other three the fact that he was, as a tecton from Nazareth, a master rhetorician, a master storyteller. He told stories 2,000 years ago. We're still peeling back the layers today. Like, we still don't know all the depth of meaning in these stories. It still confounds the greatest scholars today um, because of how sharp he was. He was so sharp that the leading academics of his day listened to him teach and said, where did this man, this tecton, get all this knowledge? Wasn't he the tecton's son? Wasn't he from Nazareth? And most shocking to people as Jesus, uh, the intellectual, most shocking to them was the fact that he could read, which to us is not a big deal. We skim over the parts where he reads. But 99% of the population, it's been proven, studied and proven that 99% of the population was illiterate. 99% of the population. So finding a tecton from Nazareth who could read was a rare thing. It was like seeing uh, Sasquatch ride a unicorn down Westheimer with no traffic, and and he throws a touchdown pass to a Texans receiver, and he catches it. Like that's his. That's how rare it would have been to find a Tecton who reads. And that's why in stories like Luke chapter 4, where Jesus goes to the synagogue in Nazareth, and it says that he opens up the scroll and he reads, and every eye in the place is locked on him. Why? Well, yeah, he's an amazing person, but they're really shocked that the Home Depot guy can read. Like the Tecton guy can read, and he's reading the Bible and he's teaching it to us. And no one then knew where Jesus could have gotten his education. We still don't know where Jesus got his education. We just know he grew in wisdom. It could have been in Egypt when they, when they fled 
to Egypt when Herod was losing his mind and, and killing the innocents in Bethlehem. They could have gone to Egypt and maybe Joseph invested that frankincense money in some private schooling for Jesus, we don't know. Or maybe, maybe his uncle Zechariah, who was a priest in the temple, John the Baptist's dad, maybe he taught Jesus and John the things that they knew. Uh, we don't know um, how Jesus got to be the scholar that he was. But what matters here is that Jesus was an intellectual. And if you are an intellectual, he welcomes you. He encourages you to love him with your mind, to be academic in your pursuit of truth. But somewhere, somehow along the way, Christianity gained a reputation for being anti-intellectual, didn't it? Somehow, somewhere along the way, Christians gained a reputation for being backward in our thinking and, and, and a little slow to catch up to culture. Jesus was brilliant and Christians are brainwashed and I don't know why. There's a, a study recently I came across that said, you know, it was talking about why millennials have left the church and all this stuff. There's like a million of these studies. I'm pretty sure the reason millennials are leaving the church is because the church won't shut up about how millennials are leaving the church. But anyway, it's another topic for another day. But this particular study said eight out of ten non-religious millennials believe that, uh, that Christians are uninformed and out of touch with reality. That we're anti-intellectual and anti-science. And I don't know how this happened. Part of it is on us as Christians. Part of it is Christians, especially Christians in the public eye, have said one too many stupid things. And we've predicted the end of days one too many times and been wrong. And we've had one too many, like, kitschy bumper, bumper stickers on our car, you know, like, in case of rapture, this car will be unoccupied, you know. Like we've, we've had a little too much of that uh, going on, part of it certainly uh, is on us, and some of us have to stop and realize that you can't just love God with your heart. You can't say you love God and not want to learn more about him and the works he's made. You can't love God and hate science, right? You can hate science class, but you can't hate science as it reveals more to us about, about God's creation, Right? Unfortunately, uh, although we should be the first ones to stand and applaud scientific advancement and achievement, especially when it's in line with God's purposes, that hasn't always been the case. And we should own that as Christians. But there's more going on than just that in our culture right now. And I just want to name it without sounding whiny. I don't want to sound like Christians are this persecuted minority in America. It's much, much worse for Christians in other parts of the world. And I get this, uh, you know, in other parts of the world, every six seconds a Christian in 2016 was killed for his or her beliefs. They don't kill us here. I appreciate that, but man, do they condescend us. In this culture, especially young people who are in college or going off to college, maybe even some high schools, if you are open about your, your faith in Jesus, they will pat you on the head and say, one day with enough schooling, you'll outgrow those backwoods beliefs that your parents forced down your throats back on the farm, you know, that kind of a thing, you know. They'll, I, I was talking to a guy the other day who got, who got uh, Mark's, uh, points off his paper because he quoted C.S. Lewis in a paper, and they said, well, you can't quote pastors in a paper. C.S. Lewis was a fellow at Oxford University, you know what I mean? So there's all this kind of bias against, against the Christian faith, 
Um, in our culture, there's, there's definitely this hope in some secular circles that one day God will die and secularism will triumph and all we'll need are science and reason. And, and this anti-Christian current is so strong now that what's happening is, it's amazing if you keep your eye on what's happening in culture. Because even the least likely voices, like the most like, secular, most liberal kind of voices in culture are starting to point out how unfair culture is to Christianity. And it's amazing to see. So I don't know how many of you are familiar with The Onion. Any fans of The Onion online newspaper? I, it's my secret vice, right? It's not secret anymore, but I like The Onion. I, it's just satire, right? They make fun of everything, and they have regularly made fun of Christians. And a few years back, I came across this Onion article that was titled, Local Church Full of Brainwashed Idiots Feeds Towns Poor. And I read the first line of this story, and I thought, oh, great, it's another hit job. The first line of this story was that sources confirmed today that the brainwashed morons at First Baptist Assembly of Christ, all of whom blindly accept whatever simplistic fairy tales are fed to them, volunteer each Wednesday night to provide meals to impoverished members of this community. And I was thinking, you know, as I read this, oh, great, another hit job on, you know, mindless, ignorant imbeciles, you know, these Christians. Uh, and, and as I read along though, I realized that something else was going on. The Onion was doing something I'd never, ever seen The Onion or anything like The Onion do. And the last line gave it away. The last line said, we try to help out as best we can, said 48-year-old Carrie Bellamy, one of the mindless sheep who adhered to a backward ideology and is incapable of thinking for herself while spooning out homemade shepherd's pie into a line of homeless individuals. It feels good to share our blessings with the less fortunate. Uh, plus, it's fun to work alongside all the members of our corrupt institution of propaganda and lies who come out each week. As of press time, the brainless, unthinking lemmings had donated their winter clothing they no longer wore to several needy families and still hadn't opened their eyes to reality. It became clear to me that what The Onion was doing wasn't poking more fun at Christians. It was exposing the hypocrisy of those who criticize Christianity and try to tear us apart and tear us down and pat us on the head as we just keep doing what we're doing every day, believing in God, hoping against hope, serving the poor, visiting the lonely, taking care of the sick, visiting those in prison. I'm still looking forward to that, the launch of that atheist prison ministry. Whenever they launch it, it'll be the first one in history, you know, like, like and yet they tear us apart and there is, this, there is a kind of condescension there that's so palpable that even the onion sees it. And even they pointed out among themselves. And the truth is that Christians have always served and loved and hoped, not in spite of how we think, but because of how we think. Because we are convinced that it's more likely than not that God is real. It's more likely than not that Jesus is legitimate. And if A and B are true, then what C means is that our lives matter and God is up to something in the world and we're a part of it. And there is a trajectory that we're on together. Justice is coming. A new kingdom is coming. A new way is coming. We want the whole world to know about it. And so nothing will stop us from serving and feeding and loving and visiting. It's not in spite of how we think. It's because of how we think. And we stand as Christians in a long line of deep and profound intellectuals who put this together years ago and inspired believers to act on what we know to be true. And everywhere the church has gone, education and health care have gone with it. 
You always hear about wherever the church has gone, you know, all these atrocities in the name of religion, you know, the crusades, you know, inquisitions. Nobody ever tells you that wherever Jesus has gone in the world, even today throughout the developing world, the best schools in the world go with him. Educating little boys and little girls equally for the first time in many places. Teaching them how to think and learn and read and reason. Everywhere the church has gone, schools go with it. My agnostic and atheist friends, they hate it when I remind them that every and all the best academic institutions in America were founded by thinking Christians. They hate it when I remind them of the original mission statement of Harvard University, which was that students be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, brought to you by Harvard University. People today don't like to be reminded of that all the time, but Christians have a long, proud history of intellectual advancement. My favorite Christian academic, who many times has brought me back from the brink of disbelief, is a man named G.K. Chesterton. He was an English philosopher in the 20th century. I love this man. If you are looking for someone to read, I encourage you to read uh, his work, Orthodoxy which is a, the worst title for a great book, but <laughs> it's more interesting than it sounds. And uh, Chesterton often would debate famous uh, uh, atheists uh, who were the tops in their field, right? And so uh, people would buy tickets like a sporting event to go watch Chesterton and George Bernard Shaw face off. And Shaw was probably the leading atheist of his day. And one time George Bernard Shaw thought he had Chesterton cornered when he said to Chesterton, you Christians, you've got to explain the problem of pain. You have a pain problem, he said. Why would your loving God allow such suffering to persist in the world? And Chesterton, without hesitating a moment, said, I will, sir, explain the problem of pain once you explain the problem of pleasure. Because you say the universe is cold and indifferent, without meaning, devoid of significance. Why then? Do we know beauty? Why then is there intimacy? Why then do people lay down their lives for someone else? Why is there joy? Why is there ecstasy? He said, we may have a pain problem, but you, sir, have a pleasure problem. And then he dropped the mic that he didn't have, but he should have. Another time, Chesterton was the only Christian on a panel at Oxford University was a panel of professors and a student asked the question of all these panelists. He said, if you were stranded on a desert island, which one book would you want to have along with you? And the smart atheists, the scholastic, you know, achievers, they all said what you might expect, uh, the age of reason, the origin of species, anything by Nietzsche, you know what they say. <laughs> They're so predictable sometimes. And then came Chesterton's turn and the moderator quipped, um, would you, you'd probably like to have the Bible, wouldn't you, Dr. Chesterton? And everybody laughed, you know, they all laughed. And Chesterton thought for a moment, he said, no, sir, I'd like to have a book called The Practical Guide to Shipbuilding. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. (laughs) In one of his books, Chesterton said, the worst moment for the atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. I think the second worst moment for a hardcore atheist or agnostic is meeting a Christian like Chesterton who's done his homework 
Because just like Jesus' intellect shocked the elites of his day, secularists today, as many of you have found, are shocked when they encounter Christians who've done their homework. So do your homework. Turn off the TV. Read. Study. Learn together and grow. Spend every moment of every day, either in this book or some other book, learning and growing you might have come tonight undecided about following Jesus because of your intellect, because of your scholastic endeavors, and because you love learning and you love science. I'm here to tell you, not only can you bring your intellect with you to Jesus, with Jesus, that's not optional. He demands it of us. Let me explain what I mean. From Mark chapter 12, when they asked Jesus what the most important commandment is, Jesus says this, you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. You've heard that passage, no big deal, right? You might not know that he was quoting a passage from the Old Testament, from his Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, which says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. Tell me what's missing from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Your mind. Why do you think Jesus would go out of his way? to add that phrase to his response. Unless we as his followers must bring our minds along with us. Every time you come in this place, you don't check your mind at the door and just worship him with your heart. Some of you are the kinds of Christians that just feel Jesus and you feel God, but you've got friends that say, why do you go to church? Why do you believe this stuff? I just feel him. That's good. That's the first step. The next thing is introducing your mind to the equation and figuring out why it is you believe what you believe so you can witness to your friends. So you can be prepared for these conversations to love God with all of your heart and there's, with all of your mind. And there's, there's several ways that that happens. And many of you are already engaged in some of these. We always talk about Bible study. And, and some of you, you get up every morning, you read your Bible, and that's awesome. I encourage you to go a next level in 2017. Find a study that you engage with other Christians that have their own questions and bring your questions and dig deep. You can trust that God will meet you where you are with your questions. Questioning and doubting, it doesn't have to drive you further into darkness. It can propel you further into the light. It can be a catalyst. As long as you don't sit in the toxicity of doubt, as long as you learn to doubt your doubts and use them as a catalyst forward, man, it can be a powerful thing to ask questions. That's why questions are always welcome here at the story. The Psalms always talk about meditating on the works of the Lord. And that's not, that's not the kind of meditation where you're just like, mm, who am I? Like what, you know, like self-searching. Like that's not what meditating on the works of the Lord. That just means stopping from the craziness of every day and thinking about God for a second. And thinking about what are we doing here? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why anything at all? Meditating on the works of the Lord means thinking on these things. Another way to love God with your mind <clears throat> is to never stop learning, never stop growing, never stop reading. And here's why. The more you search with your mind, the more deeply in love you'll fall with God. Not less. The closer you'll feel to him, not less. Sometimes we're afraid of really asking the questions that are on our hearts. You know, why do bad things happen to good people? 
you know, why did my mom have to suffer? You know, all these questions that we carry around with us. You can bring those to Jesus. You can bring them to the Bible. You can bring them to church. And God will meet you there. That's what it means to love God. To love Jesus with all your mind. Let's go to him in prayer.